I would ask that you join me in the prayer for illumination of God's Word. Gracious God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, quicken our understanding that we may receive the testimony of Scripture and believe in the signs that reveal your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Scripture lesson today is from the Gospel of John second chapter and the first 11 verses. Now hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his holy word. So today, John in his gospel takes us to a wedding. Now weddings, in my experience, are times of joy and celebration and gladness. The bride and the groom look forward to a life together. Vows are spoken in hopes for a long future as a married couple. Guests who are present offer their words of encouragement and support and congratulations as well as their well wishes for the couple's future. And all of that is usually celebrated with food and beverage and music and laughter and maybe even some dancing. Now, I suspect that everyone here knows at least something of the effort and the planning that goes into a wedding ceremony and reception. American culture has bought into something called the perfect wedding. And as a result, there are all kinds of unrealistic expectations that have been set for brides and grooms and parents and wedding attendants and yes, 
even the guests. Television reality shows, such as the ones about bridezillas and finding the perfect dress by saying yes, and 90-day engagements help to project that perfect kind of image. But in the past two years, the pandemic has made many people reevaluate what the perfect wedding looks like. This past summer, my husband and I went to four weddings that should have happened over the course of, of several months. And as much as one may try, try, try to achieve perception, perfection, rather, it's also true, something will go wrong. It may be a minor thing, but it may be something big. In my experience at weddings through the years, since the 80s in Pequannockville, two grooms have fainted on me, one floral bouquet tumbled to the floor. One set of floral flowers were still at the florist shop when the wedding began. Breezes blew out unity candles. Brides arrived well past the fashionably late hour. Tables were not set on time for the reception. And there have been other interesting stories through the years. There was also the one where all the guests got lost on the way to the reception because the directions were wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know what? In all those weddings that I attended, no one ever ran out of beverages. And the joy of celebration usually overcame that embarrassing situational moment. Weddings are a big deal and people will talk about them for years to come. The family that is hosting this wedding that we read about in John's Gospel knows that. And we are spectators to the first of Jesus' miracles, the one done during a wedding feast when something goes horribly wrong. Now, a wedding day in Jesus' time was just not a one-day brief ceremony kind of thing, but it was an experience that was shared by the entire village or community. The typical wedding celebration could last up to seven days. It was a grand festive thing, a bright interlude in an otherwise kind of dreary existence. And I must admit that I only had to plan for one day for my daughter and son, and I'm grateful for that. In first century Galilee, guests arrived at various times, depending upon how long it took to travel and when they actually received the invitation. John tells us that Jesus and his disciples arrived on the third day of this wedding celebration. They're not even halfway through this week-long festivity when the wine runs out. Now, not only is that a social embarrassment, but it's also a sign. For a wedding to run out of wine was an omen that there was very little chance of this particular marriage reaching its full potential. Maybe joy was not meant for this couple. So, Mary approaches Jesus and asks him to do something. And his response, why do you involve me, woman? 
Now that sounds harsh, and it seems so unlike Jesus, and it's a response that has puzzled biblical scholars ever since it was spoken. But the fact that Mary is even aware of the wine situation tells us something. She knows what's going on, and she may be related to the host family and has some key responsibilities in all of these arrangements. She's the hostess with the mostest, or she's trying to be. And Mary is worried. She knows dishonor will fall on this household if they don't have enough food and wine for the guest. And there's no corner liquor store nearby. But this situation is about more than just having a beverage in hand. It's also a source of shame for the host, for the bridegroom. Another preacher recently reminded me that Mary knows something about shame. After all, secrecy surrounded her own marriage to Joseph. And can you imagine the community gossip and behind-the-back whispers that have followed her through the years? I suspect Mary knows firsthand about embarrassment and shame, about being haunted by gossip and stories that surface now and then around the community well. So Mary's demand or request or sigh of what are we going to do now to Jesus isn't merely about how do we get more wine, but it's also about redeeming a family's reputation. Imagine how the neighbors would talk if this wedding situation is not rectified. What kind of man is this? He didn't just reach into the wine cellar for the cheap stuff, you know, the table wine that tastes like vinegar. He actually ran out of wine at his wedding. Who does that? Oh, poor planning. Shame on him. And Mary has probably done her share of head-shaking and tongue-clucking about the crisis in Cana, and the bridegroom and the steward, or the head butler, are beside themselves with shame and regret. Now, at this point in the story, after some finger-pointing, I think they've moved past blame and are wondering, how do we fix this? And in the emptiness of the moment, they are open to anything. We've all felt shame about something, and we all know that shame has a way of sticking. It has a way of shadowing life. Years later, after something has happened, someone will remember. About this wedding in Cana, yes, yeah, isn't that the guy who couldn't figure out how much wine he needed for his own wedding? And imagine years later, the neighbors kind of musing about the children as they grow. You know, anytime they ran short of anything, need to car borrow a cup of sugar or a pint of goat's milk, it might be said of them, you know, you can't blame the kids. After all, their father ran out of wine at their own wedding. People will cast doubt on the parent's ability to provide and plan. And imagine what the in-laws must be thinking. Why didn't he listen to what others told him about wedding planning? Maybe he should have listened to Mary, or perhaps his own mother, 
or his new wife. Anytime he messes up, this could come back to haunt him. How can they trust that he will provide for his wife and future children? So as Jesus surveys this scene, he sees more than empty wine goblets. He sees people who are broken and shamed and need to be redeemed. He sees that the bridegroom is berating himself for this gross miscalculation. Jesus sees his mother's consternation about the family honor. He sees the shame that hovers in the air and could cloud the future for this family. This is not just about the groom's character. This is about a social situation, a disaster with long-term repercussions. The stories will continue for years unless something changes. This first miracle that Jesus does in John's Gospel is not just about restocking the bar by turning the water into wine, but it's really about transforming the human spirit, about the redemption of people. Jesus sees the broken soul of a man, and while it is miraculous that water is turned into wine, more important here is the transformation from shame into praise. So Jesus takes charge. But did you notice in this miracle, Jesus doesn't really do anything. He just has conversations with his mother, with the steward, with the servants. There's no prayer or blessing. There's no confession. There's no talk about repentance or turning around. He only gives simple instructions to the steward who tells the servants, fill the jars with water and ladle it out for the people. And the guests are elated. You saved the best for last. The celebration is back. Contempt and gossip and second guessing are completely gone. Jesus turns what could have been a life of shame into praise for saving the best for last. The wine ran out, but because Jesus saw these people, he turned jars of water into the miracle of redemption. Now this kind of transformation, or we might even call it salvation, happens every day with Jesus. Jesus sees the downtrodden and lifts them up. Jesus gives new names to people like the groom. He turns from being forsaken into being a member of a community of God's grace. Jesus help us, helps us to turn wretchedness into dignity and desolation into beauty and gladness. Every day, Jesus helps people get put back together. The lost get found every day, thanks to Jesus. And every day, water turns into wine. God calls us to be like Jesus, to resist shaming and blaming and to see the dignity in every person and put whatever the situation may be, into God's hands with our prayers. To 
Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And rather than run to the mall to take advantage of winter sales, maybe we should survey the people around us like Jesus did at Cana. Who needs to be seen? Jesus calls us to advocate for the down and the out, to help transform shame into praise. And there are many ways to do that. Perhaps to support a homeless shelter or a food bank, or perhaps to advocate that every eligible voter in our nation have safe access to the ballot box on election day, or perhaps to send a card to a friend or to someone who can use a word of hope. Be the steward also, who knows a good wine when he tastes it. He could have stayed silent like the servants did after the miracle per was performed, but he turned it to the groom and he praised him. So be like the steward and encourage those who struggle. Perhaps send a note of congratulations or a thankful thought of something to someone for something simple. Jesus transformed the water into wine and it was the very best wine. And in like manner, God, through his love and mercy, transforms our lives, that we might become reflections of God's glory. So come to God's party. Let us taste the goodness of God's love and shine with the light of Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. <clears throat> oh God, by the power at work within us, you are able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. So to you we give all glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let us now stand together and with the church through the ages confess and affirm our faith using the words of Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And we respond with these words. My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. 